We're moving ever onward, having completed the first chapter. How long has this church been having Sunday meetings? 11 weeks. So next week is our three-month anniversary, huh? Praise the Lord. 11 weeks, and we move into chapter 2 of Mark. We're going to cover a significant portion, 12 verses today. Starting in Mark chapter 2, verse 1, it says, And when Jesus had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to Jesus a paralytic carried by four men. And being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. But there were some of the scribes there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Arise, take up your pallet and walk. But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, take up your pallet, And go home. And he rose and immediately took up the pallet and went out in the sight of all, so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Father, we ask that you would do and accomplish that same thing in our community at this season, at this moment in history. Lord, that you would so manifest your forgiveness and your power and your ability to tell people to rise, take up their pallet, and go, that you would so make that a reality in our community that all would be amazed, that all would say, we have never seen anything like this, and all would glorify God. And we pray that as we read your word this morning, we would know that it is living and active and true, and that it is for us, and it is for today. And as we see your goodness and your power, Lord, won't you instill in us this morning fresh faith? Won't you give us faith to believe in you? Faith to be active. Faith to believe that when we bring our friends and our families before you, you are willing and able to save. You are willing and able to forgive. Indeed, Lord, you are willing and able to heal. Just as we even heard this morning that you healed that lady of cancer last week and her biopsy was clean this week. Thank you, Jesus. We are amazed. We give you glory. We invite you to do things in our lives and in our town that we have never seen before, that you might be magnified, that you might be exalted, that your kingdom might be furthered. But now, give your subjects faith. And by your spirit, make us obedient to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. In verses 1 and 2 of our text, it says that Jesus came home, Capernaum being his adopted home. Of course, you know that he grew up in Nazareth. But when he moved out of home, so to speak, 
Uh, he took up residence in Capernaum there with Peter and James and the rest of the disciples who lived in Capernaum. And he's been out on a little preaching tour going to other towns, to other districts. And we've been reading about that and studying about that. Now he's in Capernaum. And it says that all the people came to the house that he was in, possibly Peter's. And they begin to crowd about. And he was teaching them the word. And it was so crowded that nobody could even approach the door. And we see throughout the book of Mark this repeated idea, this repeated theme of the crowds who were gathered about Jesus. Indeed, Mark will mention the crowds 40 times before the 10th chapter. And from these crowds, Jesus got his audiences to which he spoke about the Father's plan, about the kingdom coming, about repentance and salvation and the gospel. And these crowds were the object of his compassion. He looked upon the people and he saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so being moved by compassion, Jesus did wonderful things in their lives. But Mark, in all his 40 times mentioning the crowds, even before chapter 10, never once mentions that the crowds were repentant or that the crowds began to follow him in faith that they begin to believe. And we know from chapter 1, verse 15, that Jesus came preaching that men everywhere ought to repent and believe in the gospel. And yet that is the one thing that the crowds are not mentioned doing is repenting and believing. In fact, as you study the gospels, the further you go through it, you see that the more Jesus taught and the more that he taught about repentance and denying oneself and the reality of the cross, the more people left. John chapter 6 he began to speak about the fact that he was the bread of life and it says that even some of his disciples said who can handle these things this is too gnarly and they began to leave so at the beginning of his ministry the crowds were there wanting to hear wanting to see but as he began to preach the reality of the kingdom many of the crowds begin to wane to the point that the day of the crucifixion, they would be yelling, kill him, kill him, crucify him, crucify him. An amazing, dramatic change in public opinion. But one of the things that we see regarding the crowd is that they were always a hindrance to open access to Jesus. They became an obstacle to those who were in need. There's many stories in the Gospels of somebody who just wanted the healing touch of the Lord and trying to reach him were hindered by the crowd. Those who wanted to hear and again they were hindered by the crowd. Some in the crowd were in opposition as we see here. The scribes and the Pharisees, we'll see that continually. Others were just ambivalent, but nonetheless, the crowd often became a hindrance to people really wanting to see the Lord being able to approach. I want you to keep that in your mind. Juxtaposed to the crowd, we see an opposite picture. We see a picture of what disciples ought to be doing, and that is exercising their faith. Not the big crowd, but a small group of four men moving in action. Verse 3, and they came, these four men, bringing to him a paralytic carried by the four men. And being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their face, said to them, my son, 
Your sins are forgiven. Now this is the first time that we see faith mentioned in the book of Mark. And the first time that faith is mentioned, it is linked here with action. Faith in the word of God is always linked with action. It is not merely linked with belief. It's not merely linked with knowledge. It isn't linked with feeling, but faith is always linked with doing. Christians, our faith is to be an act of faith. It's not enough to intellectually um, subscribe to the things concerning the kingdom of God and the things concerning Jesus Christ. If we call ourselves followers of Him, Christians, then our faith must be an act of faith. And that's not a trip. That's not a burden. That's not to put a yoke upon you. That is a wonderful thing that we can move and respond in our faith. And don't you know that as Americans, we're so blessed to be able to do that. I have been uh, being made aware recently of the church worldwide. We think of the church in China. We think of the church in Sudan. We think of the church in Somalia. We think of the church in Indonesia. We think of the church in India. We think of the church in all of these countries where they've got to be covert in their actions. They've got to be undercover. Missionaries go there in disguise. Those who worship do so in secret. And yet, as we study the move of Christianity over there, we see that even though they are hindered by the governments and by persecution, and primarily in those Muslim countries, even though they are hindered and threatened with their very existence, their faith is active. We see that the church is growing in those places faster than it's growing in America. We see that people are truly worshiping the Lord in China. A friend of mine, his name is Bing, a big, wonderful Chinese guy I know. He goes and does missionary trips in China every summer. And there they'll just set up a place out in the middle of nowhere and begin to teach. And people will travel 14 hours through the night to come to a meeting that takes place at 3 in the morning so that they're not discovered. And there they'll teach the word well into the middle of the morning. And then those people will leave in 14 hours back home. Wow. I just fear that as Americans, we have been so, I don't want to say inundated, but maybe we've just become so accustomed to Christianity that we've become lackadaisical in our expression thereof. Billy Graham once said, the biggest sin in America is listening to sermons. Do you know what he means? doesn't mean that it's a sin to come to church, but listening and not being doers. Oh, friends, we have a wonderful God-given gift that we have been placed here in America where our religious freedoms are protected and we are able to express our Christianity. We're able to act upon it. We're able to be outward in its expression. We're able to go into the community and let people know that Jesus is the way, the way to heaven, that he is the truth, the only truth, and that he is the life, the only life. And we see a wonderful picture here with these four men. We know nothing about their beliefs. We know nothing about their um, religious notions. All that we know is that they were active in their faith as it pertained to Jesus Christ. They knew if we can just get our paralyzed friend in front of Jesus, he is going to do something. And their faith was persistent. You ought to write that down. Three points about their faith. Firstly, their faith was persistent. When they came and the situation was difficult, the situation was hard, they did not immediately give up. How many times in our own lives 
Have we stepped out in faith, wanting to labor for the Lord, maybe to share his word with somebody or encourage somebody, and we meet a little bit of resistance and we give up and we back up and say, oh, well, I guess they're not going to get saved. Or how many times have we prayed and not received an answer and we said, oh, well, I'm going to give up on that. Listen, there is a loud message given forth in the Bible that our faith is not only to be active, but our faith is to be persistent, that we are to pray without ceasing, that we are to continually petition the Lord, that we are to wait upon the Lord to show himself faithful. Those who wait on the Lord gain new strength. Daniel began to pray there in Daniel chapter 9. He began to pray concerning the future of the nation of Israel. And 21 days later, he received his answer. All the while, he was praying and he was fasting before the Lord. And when the angel finally came to give him the answer, the angel said, I was dispatched the moment you begin to pray, Daniel, but I was detained, that is, I was engaged in spiritual battle with the prince of Persia. And Michael came to my rescue, and having conquered and won in that spiritual battle, here I am to answer your prayer, to give you insight and knowledge. Don't you know that when you begin to pray for people to be healed, for people to be saved, for God to move, for God to redeem a situation in your life, my life, our lives, don't you know, don't you understand that there is always a spiritual battle that ensues? We don't see it, so often we don't believe it. But friends, the Bible is clear that we struggle against principalities and power and spiritual forces of wickedness in high places. And so we, like Daniel, have got to persevere in our faith. We've got to struggle. We've got to often labor in prayer, labor in our efforts to bring people before Jesus Christ as these guys did. Their faith was persistent. They saw the crowd. They saw the difficulties. They did not give up. Now, here's something else that I love. Their faith, second point, was creative. Their faith was creative. They said, well, it doesn't look like what we thought it would look like. You know, we thought we would just come up and walk right through the front door and lay him in front of Jesus and everything would be cool. But the circumstances are different. The situation has changed. And so what do we do? Well, gee whiz, I don't know. God gave you a brain. How about use it? They got creative. In those days, the roofs of the houses in Israel were flat, and they were often used sort of as a deck where people would chill. You know, in Acts chapter 10, that Peter was up on one of these roofs praying. And so they would have a stairway on the back of the house. It would go up to the top of the roof, and the roof was flat, and uh, there was long poles of wood that were placed upon the outside walls of that building, and then there would be smaller poles placed going in the opposite way, and then there would be some thatch placed up there, and then they would put a layer of dirt on top of that roof for insulation and protection. And the layer of dirt and everything, by the time the roof was done, it was usually about two feet thick. In the springtime, it must have been cool. Grass would grow up there and you could go and bask in the Israeli sun and chill out and sit on the grass in your roof. And so the guy said, how are we gonna get this person before Jesus? Begin to think now, friends. Because every one of us in our lives is given the unique opportunity of bringing other people to Jesus Christ. That is not a burden. That is not a trip. That is not a hard thing to do. That is a wonderful, awesome, exciting privilege. How much more exciting it is to bring people to Jesus Christ than to just go to work every day. I understand you've got to work. I've got to work too. I understand that we've got to change diapers and we've got to feed kids and we've got to go here and we've got to do this and that and the other. But how wonderful it is 
to in our daily lives also be mindful of the kingdom of God and the advancement of his kingdom and the opportunities afforded us that we can bring people before Jesus Christ. Whenever we seek to do so, we'll be met with opposition. So sometimes we've got to use what God gave us and be creative. So they saw that roof, and I imagine one of those guys went, hey man, check it out. Let's go up on the roof and dig a hole. We'll lower him down on his pallet. What? That's crazy. That just might work. Let's do it. And so they go up on the roof there and it says expressly in verse whatever that they begin to dig because there was that two feet of earth and they begin to dig a hole in the roof. And I imagine that everyone inside listening to the word went, what? What's going on? Oh no. And I imagine the homeowner, whether it was Peter mother, Peter's mother-in-law's house, which a lot of scholars think, I don't know, but I'm sure if it was, she was going, my roof, somebody's messing with my roof. And then the little bit of light began to come through and dirt was falling on people. What's going on? And I just imagine all the while the Lord was going, this is cool. <laughs> Somebody with faith, this is awesome. And they dug a hole in the roof. Listen to me, friends. We've got to take our faith through the roof. We've got to be willing to destroy the obstacles, to remove the obstacles that are around people to get them to Jesus Christ. What are those obstacles? They differ. You know what? Sometimes the obstacle between Jesus and our friends and family can be us, can it? Our inconsistent witness our funky religious ideas that we throw out there that turn people off, our attitude, our arrogance, our lack of faith, our lack of the expression of our faith, that somewhere, somehow they knew we were a Christian, but they've never seen it lived out, so they don't actually think it's real. Sometimes the biggest obstacle between Jesus and others can be us. You know what we gotta do? We gotta get out of the way. We gotta get out of the way. Sometimes you gotta dig a hole right through you. Open up your heart and say, God, purify me. This heart is full of dirt, two feet thick. There's these sticks going every which way, and I am a hindrance right now, I feel, to your work in the sphere of influence that you have given me. And so, Lord, this thing that is a bad witness, I repent of it because I love people enough that I want to see them get saved. Now, don't trip out. People's salvation does not depend upon you. But isn't it cool that we can participate in it? Jesus did say, He who does not gather with me scatters. So in that, there is the God-given idea that we are either actively gathering people into the kingdom of God, partnering as his fellow workers, or we are scattering. So oftentimes, the biggest obstacle is us. Other times, it's false notions about Jesus Christ, as these people had. Many, as we discussed in previous weeks, were following him for the wrong reasons. And so oftentimes, we can simply dispel some false notions about Christianity and about the reality of Jesus Christ. Are there any of those floating around today? Gee whiz, just about a million and a half. Isn't it wonderful that we can come and have the word of God and when people begin to say, well, Jesus is this or he's a new age guru or he reincarnated this or he's not the only way, he's just one of the very good teachers, that we could say, no, actually he said he was the way. He was the truth. He was the life. And he demonstrated that to be true through the power of the resurrection. Isn't it great that we can dispel the myths and the falsehoods concerning Jesus Christ and Christianity? 
we begin to move the barriers. Now, those are some physical barriers. Those are some practical barriers. I'm sure you could think of more. But there are also spiritual barriers. And those are removed through intercessory prayer. That is us making petition on behalf of somebody else. And for this to take place, to remove those spiritual barriers, we must persevere in prayer. We must pray with knowledge and we must pray according to God's word. God's word makes it very clear what those spiritual barriers are. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 4 says that to those who don't see the light of the gospel, their minds have been blinded by the enemy that they might not see it. Now that gives us some insight and shows us how to pray. And so through intercession, we begin to remove spiritual barriers to people coming to Jesus Christ. Thirdly, their faith was sacrificial. That is to say, they didn't care about the roof at that moment. Somebody would have to pay for the roof. If it was Peter's mother-in-law's house, I'm sure that she would come out and say, boys, you're going to pay for that roof. They said, I don't care about paying for the roof. This friend has got to be healed. Now, what this is, is an expression of love. Their faith being creative and their faith being sacrificial is an expression of love, that they would persevere and not just be turned away when they saw the crowds, that we would persevere in prayer, that we would continually seek to remove the obstacles to go through the roof and our faith on behalf of others is an expression of love. And I will confess before you guys that if there is one, well, there's several, but one of the greatest downfalls in my own faith, in my own Christianity, is a general lack of love for people around me. In and of myself, I am just the most arrogant, conceited, selfish man you will ever meet. Just totally absorbed in myself. I am so glad that Jesus Christ saved me. And I am so glad that he has redeemed me and he is sanctifying me. He's changing me from the inside out. So day by day as I press into him, maybe hopefully I'm a little less selfish. And as I get freed up from myself, there comes a concern for others and a love for others. But I think maybe if you're anything like me, if there's one thing we need to cultivate and pray about and petition the Lord to impart to us, it's his heart for people around us. His heart. That we would see people as he sees them. That's what these guys had for this paralytic. They had amazing love. They didn't just say, well, man, you're paralyzed. It's not us. They said, we got to do what it takes to get this brother before the Lord. Can we take a moment right now in the middle of the sermon? and pray that God would impart to our hearts his love. Grab hands with somebody around you. Lord, as your word is being spoken and your spirit is stirring us, we are desiring to be doers of the word. We want to be like these four dudes. We want to be those who would do anything that it takes to bring people before you. But these were men of love. They loved their friend. They were willing to pay the price for the roof. They were willing to go through the effort and dig with their very own hands. They were willing to persevere. Lord God, make us such. Give us your heart for people. Lord, help us to see people as you see them. 
open up our eyes to the reality that each person is so precious to you, so wonderful to you, that you formed each one in their mother's womb, that you know them intimately. And we are to be vessels of your love. We would confess our lack of love. We would confess our selfishness. And we would simply say, God of heaven and earth, change us. You change our hearts. You've saved us though we were wretched. And so now renew us and change us. Make us men and women of love that would have radical faith to get people before you no matter what the cost. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see here active faith. And faith removes obstacles. Friends, we got to realize that Jesus Christ is not a reluctant Savior. He desires that none should perish. It says in Ezekiel 33 that the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And so Jesus said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, how big is a mustard seed? Oh, it's tiny. But what is interesting about a mustard seed is not its size, but it's alive. We need faith that is alive. Friends, your faith will not come alive until you step out. And so begin to put application to the message now. Who are the paralytics in your life? Maybe they're not actually physically paralyzed, but maybe they have some physical maladies. Maybe there's some sickness, some infirmities, or maybe it's just a spiritual condition, or maybe it's depression, or maybe it's just a simple fact that they need to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Who has God sovereignly placed within your sphere of influence? Begin to have faith that God wants to save them. And now move in that faith. Here we go. Your faith becomes alive when you move in it. I could talk about preaching and preaching the gospel all day long. But until I do it, it doesn't mean beans. Right? We could name the name of Jesus all morning long. We could come together, worship, and go, Oh, Jesus, 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 Jesus. But until we follow Jesus... It's vain chattering. It's empty words. It's meaningless until we follow him. Ecclesiastes, the author there, Solomon said, be careful how you come into the house of God. Don't make empty vows before God. So I would rather that we would shut our mouths as a congregation and move out in faith into the community. Don't you think? It'd be wonderful if we didn't have to come to church anymore because people were so active so in love with the Lord, so walking with the Lord. We could just all call each other and say, hey man, are you good? Yeah, I'm good. You worshiping all week? Oh, I've been worshiping. I'm witnessing here and witnessing there and loving on this person and this person is hurt and we're just caring for him and we're just feeding him. Hey bro, don't waste your time at church, man. You keep loving the people. That's what it's about. It says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward loving good deeds. Let us consider how we may spur one another on. What does it mean to spur somebody? What are spurs? Anybody ride a horse here? Anybody? Any equestrians in the house? When, do you have spurs when you ride them? Probably not nowadays, but remember the cowboys? I got spurs that jingle, jangle, jingle. They would put sharp things on their boots and then they kick the horse. They spur them on to run faster. Very mean, but very, very effective. We're called to spur one another on toward loving good deeds. Hey man, 
you should um you should like do something for the Lord and you you should care about that person and go tell them. No, man. We're supposed to spur each other on towards love and good deeds. You spur them on. Hey, man, do something, man. Your neighbor's all jacked up. Go pray for him. Go tell him about the Lord. What about your coworkers? Quit being a wuss, man. Get out there. Bam. Spur each other on toward love and good deeds. And then it says, let us not forsake the gathering of ourselves together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. So faith removes obstacles. And continually in the Gospels, people come to Jesus Christ on behalf of another and he responds. Now, verse 5, it's very interesting. The man came for a physical healing and Jesus, seeing their faith, I assume that that means the faith of all five people present, the four that brought him in the paralytic, said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. He came for a physical healing. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Now this brings up an interesting theological point here. This is the only time in all of the gospels where Jesus addresses first somebody's sin before the physical healing. Now there's one of two options here. Either there is an implied link here between sin and sickness... That is, this man had to be forgiven before he could be healed. His paralysis was somehow a function or a result or a judgment of his sin. Or the second option being that Jesus went right to the heart of the issue. He knew the man's heart, that the man wanted to be forgiven for sins, that he knew he had to be forgiven for sins, and Jesus addressed that initially. Is there some sort of link in the Bible between Sin and sickness. The Jews throughout history, especially in the first century, always believed that. They thought if a man was uh, sick, that there was some sort of sin in his life. In fact, in John chapter 9, you'll remember that there was a man who was blind from birth. And the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, who sinned? This man's parents or this man that he was born blind? Immediately they thought, if this guy is blind, there's got to be some sort of sin in his life, and this blindness is a result of that sin. Jesus said, I tell you, it was neither. The parents were not guilty of the sin, nor him. But this man was born blind that God might be glorified through him. So we see that the sickness there was not a result of sin whatsoever, expressly said by Jesus. But rather, God had his own purposes in this man being born blind. What about in the book of Job? In the book of Job, Eliphaz came to Job and said, Job, I have never seen this happen to the innocent man. I've never seen these kind of boils and wounds and this sort of atrocity happen to someone who is upright. Job, you must be in sin. And yet Job was not. God said he walked before him in righteousness. He wasn't guilty of some sort of sin. God allowed it there again for his own purposes, no connection. And yet here, expressly, Jesus deals with his sin before he deals with the sickness. And in James chapter 5, James writing there says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him come to the elders that they might anoint him with oil and pray. And he will be healed and his sins will be forgiven. 
There seems to be in the book of James there a connection again between sickness and sin. So we have here two illustrations of sickness and sin being connected and two where they are not connected. Uh Uh-oh, what is it? I don't know. I don't know. It seems to be implied in the Bible that sometimes sickness can be a result of sin in our lives. Other times we're just sick. There are also times in the Bible where sickness is because of demonic influence in people's lives. So it would appear that sometimes God makes people sick for his own glory, for his own purposes. Glory to God, he's God, he gets to do whatever he wants. I have no problem with that. Other times, there seems to be sickness because of sin in somebody's life. And yet other times, there's sickness because of some sort of demonic activity in their life. And yet I believe other times people are just sick. We live in a fallen world. People get sick. That's the way it is. So how do we know? Well, we don't. So what should we do? Just pray. Hey, man, I'm sick. You got some crazy sin in your life? No? Okay, just asking. And then pray. The wonderful thing is that we can always come before God and ask for healing. We can always do that. And sometimes God will heal as he healed this man. Other times God does not. And that is his sovereignty, his prerogative. I don't question him. I just believe him. He knows best. But we can always ask. I love that. I love asking God to heal people. I love it when he does it. And I love it when he doesn't. Because there is always a purpose accomplished through suffering. Listen to me, friends. If this man had never been crippled, it might be that he never came before Jesus Christ. His friends brought him before Jesus because he was crippled. Perhaps if he had never experienced this affliction, he never would have came before the Lord. There's a great Christian of old. I can't remember his name. I wish I could. And he was a great scholar. And he said, the greatest library in my book is affliction. He meant to say that affliction in his life had taught him more than any book he had ever read about Christianity. Affliction had taught him things. That is why James says, let us consider all joy, my brethren, when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces perseverance. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 5, we exult in tribulation knowing that tribulation produces endurance and endurance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. David wrote in Psalm 119 verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted that I may learn thy statutes. David declares that he learned more about God in his affliction. And so he thanked God for his trials, for his afflictions, for his tribulations. Saints, the Bible says, let us consider it all joy. Let us exalt in our tribulations. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. In fact, the way I read my Bible, Jesus told the disciples to get into the boat. Remember that? After the feeding of 5,000? He said, get into the boat and go to the other side. In fact, the language that he used, it was like a military command. He made them get in the boat. He made them get in the boat. They got in the boat. They went out in the water. And what happened? Storm. 
Oh, surprise. No, not a surprise. The Lord knew a storm was coming. He didn't even get in the boat. (laughs) The Lord said, y'all get in the boat and go to the other side. I'm going to go up on the mountain and pray. (laughs) He goes up on the mountain and prays and the storm comes. And the storm was so radical, they were despairing of their life. And it says in Mark chapter 6, concerning what happened beforehand, the feeding of the 5,000, that they had not gained any insight from the incident. Wait a minute. How many loaves of bread were there? Anyway, there's a couple pieces of bread, and there's a couple fish. And there's 5,000 men. And then women and children means there's probably 20,000 people there. 5,000 men, the Bible says. And he fed the multitude and there were leftovers from this little bit of bread and this little bit of fish. And yet we're told concerning the disciples that they didn't gain any insight from the incident. Can you say dumb? Can you say disciples? Can you say you and me? They didn't gain any insight from witnessing the power of Jesus Christ. So they had to experience a storm in their lives. And at the end of the storm, Jesus, after calming the storm, steps into the boat. And what do the disciples do? They worship and say, truly, you are the son of God. There, through the affliction, through the trial, through the tribulation, through the storm, came more insight into the reality of God than just by witnessing his miraculous power. And so it is in our lives. We could come and see people get saved all day long. We could see people get healed of this, that, and the other. But one of the greatest schoolmasters is affliction. And so does God have something being allowed in your life right now? Some pain, some suffering, some hardship? Won't you just thank the Lord for it? Won't you? That's what the Bible says to do. And here's a wonderful prayer. You just call God on his word. God doesn't mind being called out on his word. He's not like you and I. You make him hold to it. You say, Father, you said that you work all things together for good. For those who love you and are called according to your purpose. I love you. I'm called according to your purpose, which is salvation. Work this situation for good. God, change my perspective. Show me how you are going to exchange beauty for these ashes. Show me the good that you're going to bring out of this situation. God, give me faith to persevere. Develop in me proven character and then hope and I will not be disappointed because the love of God has been poured out in my heart. You understand? Thank you, God that this man was paralyzed. Because of it, he came before you and his sins were forgiven. Isn't that great? Isn't God mysterious? Doesn't he work in crazy ways? We never would think of it like that, but luckily, we're not God. So, he says, your sins are forgiven and here's where we end is with the great controversy that came from that. But there were some of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. That was verse 6, now verse 7. Saying, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, arise, take up this pallet and walk? Obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. You and I could go around all day long telling people, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. Now they're not, only God can forgive sins. But there's no empirical way to test that, you know what I'm saying? 
But if we were to go and say to the paralytic, stand up and walk, now there's going to come a test of that word. And so Jesus said, you who don't believe, watch this. And so he said to the man, or he said to them, verse 10, but in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet and go home. And immediately he did so. We have here, in this question of the identity of Jesus Christ, a proof of his deity. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, makes it very clear that only God can forgive sins. He says there, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions. The Jews knew that only God could forgive sins. So when Jesus said, I forgive your sins, they were going, what? This is blasphemy. And the book of Leviticus told the Jews that the penalty for blasphemy was death. If Jesus was lying or fronting at this moment, they had every right, according to the Levitical law, to pick up rocks and kill Jesus on the spot. But Jesus said, well, let me just demonstrate. Let me just prove to you. Hey, man, get up and walk. And the man was healed. And every mouth was shut. And everybody began to glorify God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Jesus demonstrated that he is God in the flesh because only God has the authority to forgive sins. And Jesus forgave sins. Friends, you need to know that any sin you have ever committed in your life, you will be held accountable for before God. The Bible declares that he has kept records of the wicked deeds of men and that at the final judgment, the books will be opened and men will be judged according to that which is written in the book. And so if you have ever sinned in your life, and the Bible declares that every single human being has, in fact, the Bible declares that we were born in iniquity, born in sin, that you'll be held accountable by God. And that the penalty, the wages of sin is death, speaking of eternal separation from God, speaking of a place called hell, where it says there is weeping and darkness and gnashing of teeth and a worm that never dies. That does not sound good. And yet that is the penalty for sin. But Jesus says here, I have the authority to forgive sins. And the Bible says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess in your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That is to say, all your sins will be forgiven. Every one you have ever committed and will commit will be forgiven. And God says in Isaiah 43, 25, I will remember them no more. Jesus demonstrated that he has the power and authority to forgive our sins by the fact of what he did on the cross. That there he paid our price, that there might be forgiveness. And then he rose from the dead. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. If you need forgiveness today, Jesus Christ can forgive you. Nobody else can. Buddha is dead. He can do nothing about your sins. Confucius never offered to do a thing about your sins. Muhammad never offered to do anything about your sins. Only Jesus Christ has offered to forgive your sins and has paid the price for them himself and has rose from the dead and given his words validity. Nobody else in all of history can do that. You cannot work your sins off. God says they're not erasable. They're in a book. The only thing that could happen is that they are blotted out by the blood of Jesus Christ being poured over that record. 
having had it nailed to the cross, having it paid in full. Your sins exist, but Jesus exists, and he's willing to forgive. And your friends who are paralytic, so to speak, physically or spiritually, God is able to heal. God is willing to save. God wants to work in our community more than we want him to. Do you understand that? He wants to work in your family and friends possibly more than we're willing to even believe if we would but have faith. Grab hands of the person around you. Father, we link hands because we are all your children and we just want to express and manifest our kinship that we are brothers and sisters in Christ and that we have one Father. And we as your children join together now, ask for faith. God, that you would impart to us new faith today. That you would give to those who are desiring the gift of faith. And we ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, would give us obedient hearts to have an active faith, to remove the obstacles between you and people, to go through the roof with our faith, to be creative, to be persistent, to be sacrificial. Lord, give us faith that is motivated by love. And if there's anybody in here, Jesus, that doesn't know you as their personal Lord and Savior, I pray that right now they would simply call out upon you in their heart and say, God, I confess that I'm a sinner, but I realize you are the Savior. I repent of my sins and I say, God, forgive me. Thank you, God, that you hear that prayer and you are forgiving. Flood each one that is praying that with a real sense of your grace and your mercy and your total forgiveness. How amazing that you forgave that man that day. How amazing that you have forgiven this man and these men and women here. Thank you, Jesus. You are so wonderful, so powerful, so beautiful, so great, so awesome. And now we want to come before you with open hearts with our hands lifted in surrender, saying, God, I am insignificant, but you are great and your love is wonderful. We want to lift our hands to you and just declare, God, you are God. You are good. You alone can heal and save and make brand new and exchange this ash of a life of mine for beauty. We worship you for that, God. We bless you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.